0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you've had a wonderful fiesta week. You know, this is one of those, those celebrations that is so much fun, especially for those of us who, who are transplants to San Antonio, to be able to come into this city and, and to enjoy this festival that celebrates our history, our culture, all of those great things that make San Antonio distinctive. So I hope that you had a great time this week. And I'm glad that you've come here to join with us again as we celebrate the heritage, the depth and the truth of what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday we come together to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new life we have in him and we are so glad that you're here today. Well, last week we were talking about the kingdom of God. We were talking about how Jesus has shaped us for this new kingdom and and today we're going to be talking about that in a little bit of a different perspective. But, but before I begin talking about the kingdom of God, I want to share with you an old story that I, that I have always enjoyed hearing. You may remember the late Secretary of State George Shultz. He was the Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. And there is uh, there's a story or a legend about, about, uh, about Secretary Shultz that whenever there was a newly appointed ambassador... Who, would be, who was getting ready to be sent out to a foreign embassy, he would always meet with the Secretary of State in his office and they would always begin the conversation in the same way. Secretary of State Schultz would always look at the newly appointed ambassador, invite him to come over to step over next to this huge globe that he had in his office and he would say, all right, now, just to make sure that you're qualified for this job, I want you to point to your country. And the newly appointed ambassador would usually take a look, look around the globe, find the country he would be serving, or at least the country that where, he would be, where his ambassadorship would be, and he would point to that place, England, France, China, uh, South Africa, wherever it was. But then uh, Secretary of State Schultz would say, no, that's not your country. And he would turn the globe to the USA and say, this is your country. Remember that. The reason I bring up that story is because when we're talking about the kingdom of God, one of the things that we find is that often we're confused about who is our king and where is our kingdom. And so today we're gonna, we're gonna be d- digging a little bit more deeply into, this, into these questions. What does it mean to really know Jesus as king you know what does it really mean to know jesus as king and what does it really mean to call jesus lord these are important kingdom questions and to get into this topic today i'm actually gonna be reading from luke chapter 16 verses 10 through 15. this is the end of a parable that we will dive into in just a moment But beginning in verse 10 of Luke chapter 16, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Amidst the changing words of our generation, speak to us your eternal word that does not change. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Now today, once again, our passage is part of a larger story. And that part that we have just read is actually the summary teaching that Jesus gives at the end of a parable. Luke 16, 1 to 15 is the whole story. Now, the story begins in verse 1, of course, and Jesus is talking to his friends, his students, his disciples, but he also knows that while he's talking directly to them, he's being overheard by the Pharisees, those religious leaders who had become, who had become the self-appointed religion and morality police of the Jews. You see, Jesus was willing to call out something that the Pharisees didn't want to admit, even to themselves the Pharisees professed to be the Lord's most loyal and loving servants. But they were also what Luke calls us, tells us, they were also lovers of money. That means that they liked the status and the influence that money gave them. Plus, they believed that wealth was a sign that God was pleased with them. So they had a divided allegiance. Their love, their fear, their dependence of money and on money competed with their love, their loyalty, and their trust of God. And for all their many pious practices, they never once took a vow of poverty. And so Jesus told them this parable. Now, first of all, what is a parable? A parable is, is a story, but it's a story with a purpose. Jesus would use parables to draw people in with a clever proverb or story, and then, like a fisherman setting a hook, he would, let, he would tell the disciples that beneath the surface of the story, there was a deeper meaning, a deeper truth yet to be revealed. Now, I have to confess, when I read through this story, this, this parable... In verses 1 through 8 of Luke chapter 16, I have to confess that this is to me one of the most complicated stories, one of the most complicated parables of any that Jesus gives. At least it is for me. Maybe it's perfectly understandable to you, but let me walk through it carefully. Jesus said to his disciples, There was once a rich man who had a manager. And he got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up some huge personal expenses, and so he called the manager in and said, "What's this I hear about the, about the way you're behaving? You know what? You're fired, and I want a complete audit of your books." But instead of repenting, instead of coming clean and asking for forgiveness, the manager came up with a new and an even more elaborate scheme. He slashed the amount that the master's debtors owed to the master, which he had probably inflated anyway, and he made the boss look like the bad guy while he came off looking like the good guy. The boss wants you to pay back all this money, but I'm only going to make you pay back this much. And so where do you think their loyalty lied at that point? So he cheated his master, and then he cheated him again to cover his own crimes and corruption by currying the favor of the people with false promises. And so what this parable shows us is that the manager was not only dishonest, he was also completely disloyal to his master because he had been exploiting his position for his own wealth. He was only in this relationship for himself. He was skimming off the master's wealth at first and then seducing others to follow him with false promises instead of leading them to the true master. And the whole time he was using his position first to make his own money and then to save himself, even if it meant undermining the people's relationship and trust of the master. And when Jesus told this parable, it's like he was was looking out at the Pharisees saying, I'm looking right at you. Talking about you guys. Then Jesus explained the parable and he had several takeaways. The first is interesting and it's a little confusing, but first, Jesus gives a backhanded compliment to this dishonest manager for being shrewd. It's like he's saying, I've got to hand it to this guy, I've got to hand it to this dishonest manager. He's a shrewd con man. He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So what does shrewdness mean? Well, shrewdness is wisdom and cleverness. It's wisdom with an edge. It means that corrupt people of this world are always more clever, always more creative, it seems, always more opportunistic with their resources than the children of God. I mean, how many of you all watch these commercials about complex, complicated cyber crimes? Like the kind where they break, they, they steal your identity or they steal your mortgage using the computer and then they leverage that to get all this money and they leave you with, this, with all this debt and all this, all this stuff and then all of a sudden you find out about it later. You know, Morgan and I, we watch those commercials and we're like, what if these people who are obviously smart, who are obviously gifted, what if they were actually using their powers for good? What if instead of trying to steal from people and ruin their lives, they were actually trying to help people and actually do something good with all of those gifts that God is saying. And so I think what Jesus is saying is this. You know, what if the honest, honest and righteous children of God were as creative, were as clever, were as committed to using their money for the kingdom of God as the unrighteous are in using it to get the things they want? You know, if only the servants of God would use money for the sake of the kingdom the way the servants of the world use it for the sake of themselves, the way they use it for their own comfort and security. So Jesus makes this comment that he's shrewd, but it's not exactly a compliment. It's just a backhanded acknowledgement that this guy was pretty sharp. But then Jesus gives some important moral wisdom about being trustworthy. Yes, the manager was shrewd, But he wasn't honest. He wasn't trustworthy. And that's what got him in trouble. Jesus says if you're honest in small things, you'll be honest in big things. If you're a crook in small things, you'll be a crook in big things. If you're not honest in the small jobs, who'll put you in charge of the big jobs? Jesus is saying that it's okay to be smart, it's okay to be shrewd, it's okay to be clever. But be honest. Most of all, be trustworthy. And that's why I believe that at its heart, this story really isn't about money or management at at all. It's really about the relationship between the manager and the master. It's really about trust. And it's really about loyalty. About being loyal. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I can already hear it. I can already start reading the emails. Bob, you've gone from preaching to meddling now. You start talking about money. Well, let's get into this a little bit. Why was this manager dishonest? Why was he skimming in the first place? And why did he come up with these elaborate schemes? Why wasn't he trustworthy? I believe it's because of this. It's because he didn't love his master more than he loved himself. And because he didn't trust his master to take care of him better than he could take care of himself. And sadly, his relationship with his master with his employer was 100% transactional it was all about what his master could do for him what he could give to him what he could pay him unfortunately a lot of christians are like that with god and it's all about how can god bless me and what do i need to do to get, get to get god's goodies But from the beginning of this story, the manager was not a good servant of his master because he was too busy serving himself. And that, beloved, is the challenge of the kingdom of God. You see, we love God, but not as much as we love ourselves. And we say that we trust God but not nearly as much as we trust ourselves. We want to be part of his kingdom, but we still want to be the kings of our own lives. And like the manager in the story, when we're trying to be the kings of our own lives, our lives get pretty complicated. Now, why does Jesus use the example of money to make his point about loyalty? Well, the answer is actually pretty clear. It's because wealth is an idol in every generation. From before Jesus' time to his own, from the time of Jesus to now, and ongoing in the future, money is a temptation and an idol of every generation. The The word that Jesus actually uses is not money. It's actually the word mammon money, or mammon. And mammon means more than just cash or currency or credit. It means wealth and the things that wealth can buy, like comfort and security and luxury and power. Mammon is the embodiment of the materially centered life. And the problem is that mammon Becomes an idol. It becomes an alternate master. Because mammon is the personification of those things that compete with God for our attention, our love, our loyalty, and our will. Mammon competes with our attention to the kingdom of God every day. Because instead of trusting God, I trust mammon for my joy because money can buy us comfort and pleasure. Or I trust mammon for my health and welfare, because money buys me all of the services and things that I need. Or I trust money for my security, because money can buy power and control and influence. And so why is our love of money so important to Jesus? Why does God care about our economics? Well, God cares about money and our relationship to money, because money touches every part of our lives and it will control us if we let it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That means that this is not just a practical matter. This is a spiritual issue. When it comes to your security, to your health, your welfare, your joy, do you look first to mammon, to money, or to God? Do you look to the things of this world or the things of heaven? Or your money, for excuse me, for your security, your joy, your health, all of those things. Here's another question. Do you control your money or does it control you? Does your money serve you or do you serve it? Jesus is using money as an example of how something created competes with the love and loyalty that we should have for the creator. And beloved, that is the textbook definition of idolatry. When something created takes the rightful place of the creator. All that to say that at its heart, this story is about the relationship between the manager and the master. The story is about the relationship between the manager and the master, but you know what? It's really really about our relationship with God. Jesus was not only challenging the Pharisees. He's challenging us. What or whom? Do you trust for your joy? What or whom do you trust for the health and welfare of your family? What or whom do you trust for your security? What do we love more than God? And whom do we trust more than Him? Do we really trust our King for our security, for our peace, our meaning? And our future? Or do we trust something else first? Jesus was looking at the Pharisees and saying, You're willing to sideline or compromise your principles, and you're willing to set aside your trust in God for the sake of money. You know, for them and for us, there are so many idols, so many would be kings and kingdoms competing for our attention, competing for our devotion and our loyalty, and the temptations of celebrity and power and fame and sex and music, the desire for the perfect mate or the ideal picture family, maybe that dream job or a particular lifestyle, the distractions of entertainment or activities, Issues like gun control or immigration or taxation or sexual rights or gender identity or welfare reform or freedom of expression. They've all become idols to people and even institutions like political parties or ethnic groups or sports or cults of personalities of either celebrities or candidates for office any institution, anything created that competes for our attention or commands my love or insists on a higher priority than God is an idol. In the Pharisees, you say that you are the superstars of faith, but God sees your heart. He sees your life. Where's your real loyalty? And what about us? Where is our real loyalty? Whom do we trust with our lives? There are so many idols, so many issues and desires and influences, so many would be kings and kingdoms competing for our attention, competing for our devotion and our loyalty. And here's the big problem we all have a big hole in our lives a big hole in our lives that the world can never fill. You know it. It's a restlessness. It's an appetite. It's a dissatisfaction. You've got this big hole in your life, and the world just can't seem to fill it, and yet it still drives you, and it haunts you, and it grieves you, and it tempts you, and you have tried to fill it with all kinds of stuff, but it never seems to work. You've tried to fill it with relationships and substances and causes and health and popularity and entertainment and wealth and control. I mean, you just fill in your own blank. You know that hole. But you also know this right now, that no matter how much you throw into it, it never gets filled. You're never satisfied. And here's why that hole in your life, that emptiness is supposed to be filled by God. That bottomless pit, that great emptiness can only be filled by the infinity of God. the great fourth century saint, Augustine of Hippo, began his own autobiography with these words. He said, oh Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. What that means is that we are never going to be fulfilled or understand our lives or even who we really are until we understand that God made us, that God made you, that he loves you, and that He has called you by name. We're never going to get past our everyday fears until we realize that God loves us and we are his and that we are here because he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And you're never going to be able to find enough of what you really want until you start looking for him. We are never going to be satisfied until we understand that we can only be satisfied with him. The sin and selfishness and brokenness and competition and approval of this world, all those things make our lives so complicated, and yet they leave us empty. But into the maelstrom of that complexity, Jesus gives us the simple, focused truth. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, he said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and he will align and take care of the rest. What Jesus is telling us is that when you trust God with your life, the Holy Spirit begins to change you at your roots He doesn't just give you a new set of rules. He doesn't just give you a new set of expectations. He starts working on your heart. He starts growing his love and his presence in your life. And as the king spends more and more time on the throne, as he sits on the throne of your life, and as he puts the kingdom of God there in the front of your imagination, then the things of earth begin to drift away. He puts the kingdom of God and the things of earth in the right perspective. What that means is that he puts the people in our lives and our relationships in the right perspective so that we'll stop using people and start loving them. He puts time in the right perspective so that we start to see time and priorities in in terms of opportunity rather than scarcity, He puts material resources in perspective so that we start seeing them as tools to bless others, not just to enrich ourselves. He puts our community in the right perspective, giving us a desire to move away from the same old, same old status quo towards the kingdom to come. And he puts our identity in the right perspective, reminding us that you are not what you do you are not only as good as your latest achievement you are not who people say you are you are not what you're known for you are a child of god and you are fearfully and wonderfully made you are his beloved child and with you he is well pleased You are a child of the king, and he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And as the Holy Spirit works in us, he becomes greater and greater and more and more. And the things that compete for his kingdom command less fear, hold less allure, they wield less power, and they exert less influence over us. As God begins to fill that bottomless pit, there is less and less room for all of that other stuff that complicates our minds, our hearts, and our spirits. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Focus on one thing, the kingdom of God. Focus on one king, Jesus Christ. One more observation I want to make about this parable. The manager got caught cheating. But instead of repenting, instead of coming clean and asking for forgiveness, he came up with this complicated scheme of deception and doubled down on his dishonesty, and he cheated the master again to save his own skin. You know what comes right before this parable? The parable of the prodigal son. And I've often wondered, what if this is the same master? What if this is the same? What if this father is the master of this story? What happened with the son? The son repented, he came back and he was welcomed. Unfortunately, this man this manager didn't do that. Why? Because he didn't have the same respect and trust and loyalty. his master that the son in the previous parable had. He did it because he didn't love and trust his master. His, His own sinful and complicated heart made him believe that his master would treat him cruelly and selfishly, probably because that's how he treated others. And so while his scheme may have gotten him out of trouble and may have saved his neck for the moment, in the end He was going to lose everything. He's kind of the anti prodigal son. The prodigal son regains his home. This guy loses his job, loses his home, loses his reputation. While the son is claimed by the father, a ring is placed on his finger, and a feast is celebrated. All because this guy decided to keep it complicated instead of simply repent. Instead of humbly turning to the Lord and saying, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. But I love you. And I trust you with my life. What could the master have done with a humble heart ready to be transformed by love and loyalty? Beloved, sin is complicated. So keep it simple. Bet your life on Jesus. You pray with me. Lord, I know that you have brought every single person here for a reason. And I know that every single one of us has a huge, God shaped hole in our lives. And Lord, there is a restlessness in our lives because that hole just can't seem to get filled up. And Lord, we pray about specific problems. We pray about specific challenges. We pray about specific complications. And we want you to take care of them each individually. But Lord, you've called us to do more. You've called us to embrace you as king and to enter into your kingdom. And you've promised, O oh God, that you will begin to fill that space and drive out all those other things if we will seek first your kingdom. So, Lord, help us to trust in you. Lord, I know that right now there are men and women, there are young men, youth, young women here who have got this great gap, this great emptiness in their hearts, and they, they are lost They're dissatisfied. They're empty. Lord, I pray that you would put that that prayer on their lips today. Lord, I'm sorry. I love you and I trust you with my life. And I pray, Lord, that they would ask you to come into their hearts as king and to be filled up by your kingdom. Lord, help us to keep it simple by seeking your kingdom first. In Jesus' name, amen.